Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Optimize Your Body podcast. Today, I've got a big, big guest on the line, and I'm so excited to actually be able to pick his brain, uh, love his content. He goes by the name of Dr. Ted Nyman, and he's he's a board-certified family medicine physician in the Department of Primary Care at a leading major medical center in Seattle. His personal research and medical practice a focus on the practical implementation of diet and exercise for health optimization. And not to mention, he's he's the author of the book, The P.E. Diet. So how are you doing over there in Seattle, Ted? Martin, I'm doing great, man. Thank you for having me. How are you doing in Sydney? Very, very well. Thanks. We were just talking off air, right? You've been down here and it's one of your favorite places in the world, right? It's very cool. Yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. Awesome. What parts of Australia did you go to? You came to Sydney. Did you go anywhere else? Right. I really just went to Melbourne and Sydney, and uh, that's about it. Mm. Awesome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, I went to New Zealand also, but um, in Australia, just uh, Sydney and Melbourne, really. Incredible. And just because like 50% of my audience are in, in America anyway, how would you explain it to the fellow people, fellow, to your fellow Americans in terms of what you thought of? Australia, or maybe even New Zealand, in comparison to back home. Right, right, right. Well, Sydney is just a, just a very clean, beautiful city that kind of reminded me of something West Coast uh, U.S., like California, San Francisco. I felt a lot of, I've, I almost felt like I was in the U.S., except just a cleaner, nicer version, less crappy version. So Sydney was great. Um, New Zealand is beautiful. It's kind of like the Pacific Northwest where I'm at in that just everything's just green and lush and um, really, really uh, beautiful like mountains and fjords and uh, super cool um, vistas and landscapes. And, uh, you know, kind of reminded me of Pacific Northwest, like Seattle area, except even more awesome and nicer and cooler. So uh, definitely a place that everybody should go visit. Awesome. Yeah, we're very lucky here. We've literally got everything in one state in New South Wales. And mm-hmm. funny enough, people don't even know this. If you go down about three hours, you can actually go skiing as well in the winter here. So you've got <laughs> – it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Good times, good times. Um, yeah, Ted, I'd love you just to share, because uh, I'm really interested for myself, and I know the audience would be very interested in terms of – your background and how you actually got to where you were, you know, to where you're at now. And just a, a little bit more, a little bit more about yourself, basically. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, um, I got a mechanical engineering degree uh, undergrad, wanted to do aerospace, not interested in medicine at all. Uh, and then couldn't get a, a job in aerospace because uh, up here, Boeing, uh, you know, makes all the planes and they uh, had a, a, some huge layoff and laid off all the engineers. So I couldn't get a job. Nobody in my engineering class could get a job. And I just decided I was going to go back to school. And I was so depressed about the job market that I just switched careers and went to medical school kind of on a whim and uh, just found myself, boom, uh, you know, in medical school and then in my residency, like working with super sick people. And I, and I realized, wow, there's such a spectrum of health that I see every day. I see these people who are just in horrific shape. Like they have, everything's wrong with them. Everything. Like they have every chronic problem you could have. And then these other people are just like, you know, they look like bodybuilders. They're just ripped and jacked. They're incredibly healthy. And I'm like, oh my God, what is the difference between these types of people? Right. So, you know, in medical school, they pretty much taught you that it was all genetic, right? You know, if both your parents are overweight, there's 80% chance you'll be overweight. Pure genetics. If uh, both your parents have type 2 diabetes, there's an 80% chance you're going to have type 2 diabetes. Pure genetics. So they're like, oh, it's all genetic, and you just need to feel sorry for people who have these this bad genetics. You can't really do anything about it. And here's all the drugs you give them. You give them this drug, and if they're still... Sig, so you give them another drug and then a couple more drugs. And it was just basically like genetics and then drugs, right? So I just felt sorry for all these people with diabetes. It's like, well, it's not their fault. It's their parents. And um, it's all about the drugs. And like the nutrition part of medical school and my residency was microscopic. And the uh, exercise part was beyond microscopic. 
And then I realized somewhere in there, hey, wait a minute. I mean, like really the only difference here is just diet and exercise between these super healthy people and these super sick people. It's really not that genetic. I have these healthy people who maybe one of their parents or grandparents did have diabetes or obesity or something, but they don't. So I realized it's this weird interplay between genetics and environment, but your genetics doesn't really seal your fate. You know what I mean? This, this environmental component is huge and you can really boil it down to just diet and exercise. And once I realized that was such a powerful factor, this, this huge leverage that diet and exercise could have on your health outcome in life, um, I realized that that's probably the most important thing I should be looking into or focusing on. It's the thing I was taught the least about, but it was probably the most important. So I've just spent the last 20, 25 years just researching diet and exercise to figure out exactly what kind of levers people can pull to change their phenotype, what they look like, body composition, metabolic health. And uh, that's how I got to where I'm at. I'm just super geeked out about diet and exercise, how it influences body composition and health. And the easiest way to communicate that to, you know, some patient who just walks in a primary care doctor, like what, what can I encapsulate to tell people, you know, hey, this is the biggest rock in the jar that you should focus on to really make a big change in your body composition and your health. And so that's kind of what I'm all about. That's, that's my focus. It's like practical impl implementation of diet and exercise to, you know, improve your body composition and health. Love it, man. Love it. Diet plus exercise equals health. I love that very simple equation. It sounds very simple, which on paper it is, right? How did you come up with that simple equation? And speaking of health, if you wouldn't mind explaining from your perspective what metabolic health actually is, because I like to talk about this topic a lot, and sometimes people get kind of confused because it is a very complex thing, right, metabolism? Right, right, right. Well, well first of all, diet and health, and I'm sorry, diet and exercise and health, if you really break it down and you look at, you know, just the most overweight, sick, diabetic person you can think of and the healthiest, you know, fire breathing CrossFitter or whatever you can think of, uh, you're going to you're going to struggle to find any differences that aren't just pure diet and exercise. Really, um, there's not a, a lot of other factors that can influences those health outcomes. So that's pretty much what it boils down to. I mean, genetics does set some brackets on how good or bad you can be in different ways, but you know, the reality is almost everything else comes down to diet and exercise. Uh, when it comes to metabolic health, uh, insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance is absolutely huge. So it turns out that every single chronic degenerative disease you can name is driven forward by insulin resistance or made worse by insulin resistance. That's all of your cardiovascular diseases. That's all of your diabetes spectrum problems. That's all of your, uh, that's a good portion of your cancers. Um, the risk go up with insulin resistance. That's a, a lot of your autoimmune diseases. Pretty much any chronic degenerative disease you could name is worsened with insulin resistance. And that that's all of your neurodegenerative conditions, your uh, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, uh, neurodegenerative spectrum diseases. You're pretty much not going to name a chronic degenerative disease that isn't either worsened by insulin resistance or even directly caused by it. So insulin resistance is really just running out of place to store calories. It's really just running out of fat storage. When you uh, don't have, so if you have somebody who's super thin, and has been starving to death and all their fat cells are shrunk down and they have tons of overhead for fat storage, calorie storage, they're extremely insulin sensitive and they'll have very, very low fasting insulin levels, really, really high insulin sensitivity. But as someone who's just chronically been consuming too many calories and they're over fat, all their fat cells are enlarged, they don't have a good place to store fat anymore. And that's someone who's insulin resistant. And it really just comes down to mechanically running out of places to store incoming energy calories, carbohydrate and fat. So you either don't have very much skeletal muscle or room in your muscle to store carbs, or you don't have any room left in your fat cells to store fat. And uh, once you've got both of those, that's insulin resistance. Mm, makes a lot of sense. And the PE diets, Ted, the PE diets, let's talk on that, right? Because essentially... Protein and energy, right? In case anyone's wondering, PE, protein and energy. 
And it's kind of almost, you put it in the context, you know, protein and energy versus low carbs and low fats. Talk a bit more, Ted, on the PE diet, how you came up with that, you know, that concept and how you would explain that to your, to the audience in relation to, you know, protein and energy versus low carbs and low fats. Got it. Got it. So I had, I zoomed way, way out to look at, you know, what is eating? What is eating? I mean, what the hell is going on here? So it turns out that animals are only alive because they just constantly ingest other living organisms. That's, you know, humans are animals. All animals just eat other living things to get everything they need to be alive. So we're just constantly eating other living organisms. And all animals get all of their food originally from plants. So animals either eat plants or an animal that's eating plants. So plants are making all the food for all animals. And what plants are doing is photosynthesis, which is using solar energy and carbons from the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And they're using the solar energy to string together chains of carbons. And that's either carbohydrates or hydrocarbons, which is fats. So all of your carbs and fats are just energy macronutrients that are literally just a string of carbons that plants have made by taking solar energy and storing it in a carbon chain with high energy carbon-carbon bonds, using carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that's photosynthesis. And carbs and fats are almost interchangeable and they're really just energy sources. And your body is this cool hybrid engine that can live on either carbs, fat, or any combination switching back and forth between the two. You have a little bit different ways of storing them because fat's not water soluble. You store fat separately in your fat cells as triglycerides. And because carbohydrate is water soluble, you have to store it differently as glycogen in your muscles or your liver. Um, and we happen to have a lot more room for fat storage. So if you eat extra carbs, you have to convert it into fat and then store it. But bottom line is we're just living off of these carbon chains from carbs or fats. And then protein is different. Protein is very different. So plants make protein by sucking nitrogen as a mineral up from soil. So the plant's taking minerals out of the soil, nitrogen uh, for protein, and a couple, like a dozen other minerals that are essential for plant and animal life. And the plant's sucking these out of the soil and then making amino acids. You have these 20 amino acids that make pretty much every protein in your body. And plants are making all the protein for animals and then all the carbs and fats for animals as well. And you're eating basically two categories of things. Nutrients, which is like protein, nitrogen, amino acids, and the minerals from soil. And then energy, which is either carbs or fats, these high energy carbon chains. And when you zoom way out, you can kind of look at eating as this sort of protein and mineral and nutrient side, and then this energy side, which is carbs or fats interchangeably. And the PE diet is just a way of looking at the protein to energy ratio of your diet, the ratio of protein to non-protein energy, carbs or fats in the diet. It's really just the protein percentage of the calories you're eating. And the reason why protein percent of calories is such an important factor is because Ad-lib uh, intake, calorie intake in humans, which is basically how much you eat when you just eat until you're full, um, is extremely closely related to protein percentage of the diet. In other words, the higher and higher and higher the protein percent of your diet, the less calories you're going to eat, full stop. This works in basically any animal at all, including humans. So if you look at worldwide hunter-gatherer macronutrients, they're eating, you know, 30, 33% of calories from protein on average. And then over the past 60 years of the obesity epidemic, the protein percent of the standard American diet has just steadily dropped. And now we're down, you know, we went to, you know, 16%, 15%, 40%. We're at about 12.5% protein in America, which technically is the protein percentage at which you get absolute maximum fattening of lab animals, rats, mice, um, pretty much any animal, including humans. So we've kind of, the protein percent has fallen down to this low point where you can maximally overeat and maximally fatten. Um, so protein percent, very, very important, huge, big deal. We have studies that show if you can get protein back up to 20% of calories, most people, will significantly lose weight and you're going to reverse the majority of overweight and obesity. If you look at the National Weight Loss Registry in this country, for example, 
to see what people have in common when they've lost a significant amount of weight and kept it off long term. The one thing they all have in common is protein percent's gone back up towards about 20% of calories. Um, some of them are high carb, some are low carb, some are exercising, some are not exercising. But what they're all doing is increasing protein percent. If you look at um, studies where you basically make people increase protein to 30% of their calories, you automatically reverse pretty much 100% of prediabetes because people just can't overeat protein. You, you literally can't do it. I mean, if you give someone just an infinite supply of skinless chicken breasts and tell them to you know, eat as much as they want, they're literally going to eat one and a half of those and they're just going to stop eating. And that's kind of how it works. So as people eat a higher and higher protein percentage, they just automatically eat less and less and less. Um, you'll, if you look at your, you know, bodybuilders like yourself doing stage prep, I mean, your protein's always over 30%, maybe 35, probably 40%, could be 50% by the time you're in, you know, the peak week. If you're, you know, you're just eating egg whites and skinless chicken breasts and a cucumber, you know, you're eating absurdly high protein percents. And, uh, Part of the reason that works is you just have this very high satiety per calorie from protein, and it's extraordinarily satiating. And so protein percent and this ratio of protein to non-protein energy is one of the most important factors that anybody could really focus on. It's not, it's not the only one, but it's, it's one of the biggest ones. So uh, I just kind of wrote this book to sort of simplify this concept and have everybody step back a little bit and look at the ratio of protein to non-protein energy they're eating. Mm, yeah, I love the way you break it down. It's very simple. And I'm constantly having this conversation and constantly talking about this on the podcast or to clients. It's really hard to go wrong, right? And I love what you talk about as well in terms of the satiety per calorie, right? That is a lot of your message. It's very simple, very effective as well. You say there's no good or bad foods. It's more just a case of certain foods will keep you more satiated and other foods quite simply won't. And in fact, quite the opposite. And like what you were saying there, if you're filling up most of your calories with fats and carbs, you're having very low protein, the likelihood of you overeating is extremely high, right? So if you could break down for us, Ted, because I know you talk about the total daily energy expenditure. So for the average person listening, you know, in terms of their total daily calorie in, uh, calorie expenditure, how would you break that down in terms of, you know, basal metabolic rate? And I know you just talked down on what you were alluding to is the thermic effect of foods, right? With protein and fiber and stuff. Would you mind breaking that down for the audience um, and how you would kind of communicate the satiety per calorie thing? You got it. Okay. So um, daily caloric expenditure can basically be divided into basal metabolic rate and then physical activity or activity um, calories. So basically resting energy expenditure and activity energy expenditure uh, resting energy expenditure is really just related to body size, basal metabolic rate. Lean mass uh, requires more calories. So if you're super muscular, you burn more calories just sitting on the couch. Fat is a lot less metabolically active. So if, you're mo if your body is mostly fat, your metabolic rate's lower. So, But uh, body size is the number one factor when it comes to energy expenditure in the day, like just how large you are. So somebody who's super huge, even if they don't move around a lot, they have a larger basal metabolic rate. And as someone who has a high amount of muscle has an even higher basal metabolic rate. And so that's about two thirds of your overall energy expenditure. And then one third of it is um, activity related expenditure. You've got the thermic effect of food, which means when you eat, you have to break all this food down into its macronutrients and store it and that ends up being a small sliver of your activity energy expenditure. There's um, a non-exercise activity expenditure or NEAT, which is just walking around, you know, like what I'm doing right now, talking and moving my arms and standing here. And that is a, you know, small chunk of your activity energy expenditure. And then there's intentional exercise, like physical exercise. And that is also a chunk of your activity energy, energy expenditure. Um, and then you add them all up, and that's your total daily energy expenditure. Um, and then I think you asked me to explain satiety per calorie as well. Yeah, got it. yeah so correct. Yeah, yeah. Calorie. If you don't mind, yeah, transitioning into that, that'd be awesome. Got it, got it, got it. So satiety per calorie 
is this sort of big overarching way I like to think about how any diet could be good or bad. So, you know, humans eat until they get a certain amount of protein. So a high protein percentage food is going to have higher satiety per calorie. That skinless chicken breast, you get a lot of satiety for not a lot of calories. But something that's very low protein percentage is going to have lower satiety per calorie. There are other factors when it comes to satiety per calorie. Fiber, for example, fiber, uh, lots of weight and volume filling up your stomach, but hardly any calories that you can extract from it. So the more fiber a food has, the higher the satiety per calorie. Um, the more water a food has, the, it's going to add weight and volume. So if I eat like, for example, if I have a pork rind, which is de dehydrated and all that's left is just fat, um, doesn't weigh very much and it's not going to distend my stomach very much. So the satiety per calorie is going to be lower than like a pork chop, like a fresh pork chop is going to be 75% water and it's going to have a lot more weight and volume and require a lot more chewing. And I'm going to get a lot more satiety per calorie than something dehydrated like beef jerky or the pork rind type thing. So water, weight and volume, fiber, protein percent, all of these things give you higher satiety per calorie. Um, what lower satiety per calorie is high energy density refined carbs and fats together. So this is a couple things. First of all, your hunter-gatherer brain is wired to look for sources of energy in your environment that are really, really high calorie because this is high reward, right? Like honey and bone marrow and all these high carb and high fat things that a hunter-gatherer might look for. So your hunter-gatherers, if they find some honey, they just binge on it and eat the whole thing. And if they find like some really tasty, high energy density fruit or something, they might just binge eat a whole bunch of it. And that's because when you're a hunter-gatherer, you're doing this sort of economics equation every day that's life or death, right? So if I expend a thousand calories hunting a gazelle or digging up tubers, I better get a thousand calories back from that food or I'm going to die. Even if I get 900 calories back, but I expended a thousand getting it, uh, I'm dead in like a month, right? So your, your body's doing this economics equation that's life or death on a daily basis. You better get more energy back from your food than it took to get that food. And that's why your brain lights up like a slot machine anytime you can get something that's high energy density carbs or fats. Not so much protein, but that combination of high carb, high fat together, usually with lowish protein, is super hedonic and tasty and seductive and rewarding. And that's your donuts and your pizza and your candy bars and your chocolate chip cookies and your uh, fresh baked cinnamon roll with icing on it. And these are all these high carb, high fat, high energy density foods that tend to be fairly low in protein, low-ish in protein, low-ish in water, low-ish in fiber. Um, they're very tasty and they're very addictive. And you'll eat them even when you're not hungry. And so, so the satiety per calorie is terrible on these foods. It's almost negative because you're going to eat it even when you're not really physiologically hungry. Like you go to a restaurant, you have a giant steak, a giant salad. You're super full. Everything's awesome. Uh, check please. Oh, but then the dessert tray comes out and they've got like cheesecake and, and donuts and ice cream. And you're like, oh yeah, I could totally eat all of that. And uh, that is this sort of hedonic factor that's driving overeating by having very low satiety per calorie because it's mostly just calories. And so satiety per calorie is a way of just evaluating foods on this giant spectrum from like super low satiety per calorie, mostly calorie, very little satiety, that's your donut. And then super high satiety per calorie, loss of satiety, very few calories. That's your really high fiber, high protein, high water food, um, like green vegetables, like your spinach is about 40, 45% protein by calories and tons of fiber. And there's like no fat and hardly any digestible carbs in there. So it's absurdly high. That's like one of the highest satiety per calorie foods of all is some sort of green leafy vegetable, right? So foods, you know, when you look at foods this way, no food is really, you know, good or bad. It's just higher or lower satiety per calorie. So if I'm underweight and I'm trying to bulk, um, I pick lower satiety per calorie foods like donuts. 
that, that's actually going to help me eat way more calories. If I'm overweight and I'm trying to cut, I'm going to, you know, reach for the spinach or the lettuce or whatever, which has way lower calories and way higher satiety per calorie. And all these foods are just kind of on a spectrum like this. And it's a way of looking at foods that transcends, you know, carbs versus fat, which to me is just a lateral move when you're looking at the overall protein to energy ratio of the diet. Um, or plants versus animals, which again, is just sort of a lateral move because there are plant foods that have really good or really bad satiety per calorie. There's animal foods that have really good or really bad satiety per calorie. You've got, you know, wild caught fish on the good end and butter on the bad end. So, you know, carbs versus fat is kind of a distraction. Plants versus animals is kind of a smoke screen. Uh, but satiety per calorie is a way of teasing out what might be higher or lower, even in any other diet pattern, like even in your paleo diet or your Mediterranean diet or your vegan diet or whatever, there's still foods that are gonna have higher or lower satiety per calorie. So it's sort of this meta way of looking at diets, you know, in a purely objective fashion that's not religious or tribal or, um, oh, I just don't eat carbs or I'm just pure carnivore or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and you just touched on um, hedonic. Head, how do you pronounce that word? Hedonic. Hedonic. Uh -huh. Hedonic. That's the one. Yeah, hedonic, <laughs> hedonic eating. Now, a lot of those foods you were talking about there—the donuts, the cinnamon rolls, or whatever—they're highly palatable, right? And I used to really struggle with these, Ted, in my bodybuilding days, especially. You know, when I used to restrict, and then I would eat those foods, and it would just be like this explosion of, you know. <laughs> Whatever I was, whatever kind of like rush I was getting off that, whatever kind of hormones I was releasing, um, it was literally addictive, right? So in terms of, you know, ultra processed foods, I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, so what you're alluding to there, you're talking about, um, you're talking about uh, satiety per calorie, which, and you were alluding to a lot of single ingredient foods there, right? You were saying about fiber, your spinach, your chicken, you know, those kind of things. And then obviously highly processed foods then foods, which, you know, you mentioned then about uh, donuts, for example, however many ingredients they've got in them. So what I'm trying to say is um, what are your thoughts on the kind of debate of, you know, ultra processed foods versus whole foods? Because well, I think there was a study then recently, which showed that it was a cross study as well. The group overate by like 500 calories a day, the group that had unlimited access to the ultra processed foods versus the whole foods, the single ingredient foods. I'd love to know what your take is on that. Um, cause I'm sure you might get a bit of pushback as well, right. From some of the stuff you put out there. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and I love the study you're alluding to the Kevin Hall study, looking at processed versus unprocessed foods and, uh, people just ate, you know, hundreds of calories more per day on an ad lib diet where everyone ate as much as they wanted on the processed food. Um, as it turns out, the energy density of the processed diet in that study was about double that of the unprocessed diet. So you were looking at a mostly energy density when it came to the comparison between those. Um, I, I, I think to a first order approximation, process is bad and unprocessed is good. And I see just this avalanche of scientific research now. Everyone's jumping on the processed food bandwagon. And every study that comes out now is like, ooh, uh, the processed food and the risk for diabetes and processed food and the risk for obesity and processed food and the risk for this. That. So there's this huge association between processed food and bad outcomes because all of your bad foods are processed, basically. However, I have a little bit of pushback against that because there can be highly processed foods that are absolutely amazing, right? <laughs> that have incredibly good satiety per calorie. Uh, you know, like uh, Greek yogurt. I eat these Greek yogurts with 20 ingredients in them, artificial sweeteners and uh, all sorts of stabilizers and weird stuff in them, right? And if you're afraid of processed foods or you have chemophobia or something like that, you might never eat this stuff. You'd be like, oh my God, that's terrible. I should just go out and, you know, eat a potato or something. But some of these foods are absolutely spectacular. They have amazing macro macros. They have super low energy density. They have, uh, you know, incredible properties for satiety. I use, you know, whey powder that's uh, technically highly processed, might have artificial sweeteners in it and a bunch of other ingredients. Um, I'm eating some processed foods that are absolutely amazing. 
And so you can't just necessarily throw all processed foods out. I will agree with the general sentiment that processed is bad and unprocessed is good. That's that's pretty much always true. You're not going to find a lot of unprocessed foods that you're going to get into trouble with. And all of your donuts and your pizza and your candy bars are highly processed. So you could look at it as just processed versus unprocessed. But again, I actually prefer the satiety per calorie um, uh, heuristic for looking at these things because there's a few unprocessed foods that are not great for body composition. Like if you just went on a diet of like dates and bone marrow or something, it's not going to be pretty. You know what I mean? There, there are unprocessed foods out there that are not that health promoting. Um, and on the same, uh, 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 same, uh, like opposite of that is the Greek yogurt. That's amazing. Even though it's super processed. So you just can't always necessarily, um, rely on processed versus unprocessed. In my opinion, I actually do think satiety per calorie uh, is a better way of looking at it. And I will agree that for the most part, unprocessed is overwhelmingly better than processed. And there are exceptions. So, you know, just, just saying. I love how you categorized processed foods. They're not all the same. They're not all treated equally, right? I love what you just did there. Because it's ultra processed mm -hmm. foods. Then you can have whey protein and take it too far and say, oh, it's got this big list of ingredients. But I know exactly what you said. If I have like, I have coconut yogurt, if I, there's not much protein in that. But if I have coconut yogurt and I add like some whey protein or some protein to it, like 30 grams powder, I'm satiated. You know what I mean? So it's not, yeah. it's not all treated equally. And uh, I want I wanted to touch on something you mentioned there as well. It's like, but for example, on the flip side, right now I've been on my own journey, and I always communicate this to clients, you know. And I always see this similar behavior patterns as well. Like, just for example, if I have a, a client who tends to get a lot of their protein from protein bars, for example, right, I notice that they just tend to eat more. They just tend to make not as good choices with food. Essentially, they just, I guess, even for me though, right, as well, Ted. If I have like a Quest bar. I've got no interest in having one quest bar. I'm, I'm ordering at least two. And if I ordered four, I could probably eat four in a row. Right? So that's probably my own behavioral thing from before. You know, nowadays, I, only, I just eat probably similar to you. you know, I eat mainly single ingredient foods. Occasionally, I'll have some, some, some yogurt, like I say, with some protein powder. But generally, it's just, you know, mainly meat and, and stuff like that, right? But, you know, I feel like those foods, even though they're high protein, like the bars and stuff, I'm not sure about you and what your take is on this. Um, but I do find that, you know, having one, it's satisfying if I just eat one and leave it for 20 minutes, I'm fine. But I always end up buying two because I'm like, no, I want at least two of them. I want to make the most of it. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> they taste, and that's Absolutely. even Quest, which I would say Quest is probably, you know, one of the best, I'd say, you know, in terms of the, you know, because some of them, I, I don't want to say bad, good or bad, but, you know, some of the protein bars, you look at it and you're like, oh, I might as well just have, it's, it's got like 10 grams of protein. And you're like, oh, I might as well just have a Mars bar or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's a couple things going on there. First of all, the energy density is pretty high on those protein bars. So most of your protein bars are going to be about 4 kcals per gram, which is higher than, it's, it's way higher than most naturally occurring foods. Like even your just straight honey is about 3.5, 3.7 kcals per gram. The Quest bar is 4 kcals per gram. Any kind of meat is going to be 2, 2.5 kcals per gram. The Quest bar is 4 kcals per gram. The um, calorie density is way high. So the, the, the bar is so small. There's so small weight and volume from it. You're still hungry, right? It's 200 calories, and it's like that. So super high energy density, way higher than uh, even, even higher than the standard American diet. Technically, a protein bar is higher energy density than just the standard American diet. Um, and then you've also got the factor that if you sweeten something that has... Uh, some fat in it, you're just going to eat more. So like if I gave somebody like some nuts to eat that didn't have any salt or sweetener on it, and then I gave somebody else some like honey roasted peanuts, even if I use a sugar-free sweetener or some sort of artificial sweetener, you're going to eat more honey roasted peanuts with a sweet taste and a little bit of salt in there. You're just going to eat twice as much of that as you would like a plain, you know, unsalted, unseasoned peanut. You're just going to automatically eat more. Uh, so the, 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 the protein bar has this, you know, you're adding a sweet to, to some fat, you're adding some salt to it, uh, you know, higher sodium. You've got something with very small weight and volume. 
for the amount of calories. So very high energy density. And all of these are pretty terrible for satiety per calorie. So it's no surprise that most people are going to overeat protein bars. And that's why nobody should have protein bars at the base of their food pyramid. But now there are other protein items, like the Greek yogurt I was talking about, that's one kcal per gram, or maybe even 0.9 kcals per gram. So you get that giant tub of like light and fit, you know, Greek yogurt with no fat and super low carbs and artificial sweetener. You can eat this whole, you know, the, the vat is like half a kilogram and it's 400 calories and you're not hungry for the rest of your life. And the energy density is just so low. The satiety per calorie is way higher, mostly because it has more water in it. But uh, so, yeah, that's the problem with protein bars. Super high energy density, no water. You're adding a sweetener. Uh, it's a lot more hedonic. Um, just all of those factors together. And on the flip side, Ted, how would you explain to the audience volume eating? I know you've touched on that and you just kind of touched on it again then with the energy density. How would you how would you convey that to the audience, volume eating? Uh, did you say volume eating? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, so, okay, basically, the way that works is your gastrointestinal tract, when you mechanically distend it, your stomach and your small intestine releases these incretins, these hormones like GLP-1, like the injections everyone's using now. Everyone's using their ozempic and their semaglutide and the GLP-1 receptor agonist injections for weight loss and diabetes. And these injections are just incretin hormones that your GI tract emits when it's mechanically stretched, with, especially with something that takes a really long time to digest. So if you just eat a huge amount of protein and fiber, like if you ate, you know, 10 skinless chicken breasts and a pound of asparagus, it's going to present this huge distension to your stomach and your small intestine. And it's also going to be there for a long time. And your body releases this to say, ooh, do not eat anything else because we're going to be digesting this for like the next, you know, 12 hours. So you're done eating. You're super full. And that's how it works. Some people really need a fair amount of weight and volume to really feel full. And so I have a lot of patients who basically have to almost binge eat something to really feel full. They need this mechanical distension. And if somebody like that is relying on a high energy density item like a Quest bar or protein bar, they're in trouble. Like, so you, you need something that's very heavy and voluminous, basically has a very low energy density that you can eat a lot of. And I, I have a lot of patients eating things that provide tons of weight and volume, or hardly any calories, uh, apples, very um, low energy density. Carrots, ridiculously low energy density, right? And, you know, it takes 18 pounds of carrots to equal 2,400 calories. I mean, it's just absurd. So uh, berries, you know, raspberries, you can eat just unbelievable quantities for no calories at all. Um, the Greek yogurt I was talking about, super low energy density, and you can eat huge amounts. Um, air popped popcorn, as long as you don't put any fat on it, um, you know, you eat 20 cups of air pop popcorn, it's only 400 calories. Plus, it takes forever to chew it all. And oral processing time is something else that raises satiety per calorie. So if you have to chew it a thousand times, uh, you're more satiated for less calories, like celery or carrots or um, harder foods. The surface hardness of a food improves satiety per calorie, which is why drinking liquids is not as satiating as eating a solid food. So, you know, I tell people, who benefit from volume eating to have something they can eat a ton of just, you know, to feel super full, even though the calories aren't that high. And I love things like celery and I love things like apples and berries and carrots and AirPod popcorn and Greek yogurt and anything like that is really, really helpful. Awesome. Would you say to include, cause I know you mentioned a lot of fruit and stuff there. Would you say for some of your clients, just curious that, would you say to have protein, though, with every one of those meals, ideally, would you say, right, if you can, or would you just say, you know what, as long as you're having a lot of volume, like you say, a lot of fiber, like you say there, the celery, the apple, the carrots, those kind of things, that works for some clients. That can keep them satiated for a good amount of time, you would say, as well. Yeah, I, I'm mostly, you know, when it comes to protein, I, I mostly want people to eat adequate amount of protein per day, mm. and I want them to maybe 
bookend their eating window with a large bolus of protein. So let's say you're, you know, you have a 12 hour eating window or eight hours, you, you definitely want a large amount of protein at the beginning and the end. And that's just so you have a lot of amino acid availability for muscle protein synthesis if you're working out or to prevent muscle protein breakdown if you're not. Um, so I'm concerned about amount of protein in the day and I'm concerned about distributing it a little bit. So it's not all just in one meal. But there are definitely meals in between where I think it's not as critical and you could just eat a bunch of carrots or something, even though they're a fairly low protein food. Would it be even better to have some protein with that, like drink a whey shake and eat a bunch of carrots? Probably. So like, wouldn't hurt to throw some protein in there also. Um, but I'm not obsessed with, you know, X amount of protein at every single meal. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense, Ted. So Move more and eat less, right? How how often do you hear this, right? It's really simple for the audience, right? You know, for anyone who's out of shape or anyone who's overweight, all you got to do is just move more and eat less, right? So what's your problem? It's not really a big deal, is it, Ted? It's quite easy, isn't it? Surely. <laughs> it's super easy, right, right, right. Yeah, there, there's two basic problems with eat more, lose less. Uh, I'm sorry. Eat less, move more. The problem with eating less is that everyone eats to satiety that's just how the system works every human on earth every animal on earth they if they have access to food they eat till they're not hungry that is exactly how you're wired that's how everyone's wired you're already eating to satiety of the foods in your food environment uh so you're not going to be able to just consciously eat less that doesn't happen what you have to do is change the foods that you're eating so you can automatically eat less calories because you're eating the same weighted and volume of food and the same amount of protein, and you just have a higher satiety per calorie. So the secret is food choice and really your food environment, like what's available. And if you improve your food environment and your food choices, then you can automatically eat fewer calories, but still be eating to satiety, which you're going to do anyway. So just eating less of what you're already eating is not possible. Like everyone is going to fail at that. That's just completely impossible. Um, and then on the move more side, the problem is if you have a huge body size, you burn so many calories just sitting there and being alive that you don't have a lot of energy left for exercise. Uh, humans have this fairly constrained energy model where you're just you're going to burn a certain amount of energy and and that's it. You can't sustain uh, a higher amount for very long, right? You could might maybe do it short term, but not for very long. So if you're absolutely huge, it's really hard to exercise much on top of that because you're already spending so many calories just being alive and maintaining your body size. So you kind of have to simultaneously start losing weight. And then, like, start ramping up your exercise at the same time. So as your weight's going down, you can start exercising more simultaneously, and then you're not exceeding uh, your your sort of constrained energy model or this cap on energy expenditure. So it's it's tricky. You can't just say, okay, I'm going to still eat as much and weigh as much as I do, but I'm just going to exercise way more. That's not sustainable. You, you're just not going to be able to do it. And you also can't just say, okay, I'm going to eat less of the same food I'm already eating now to satiety because you're going to be starving out of your mind and that's going to be a fail. So it has to be this weird combination of just having different foods in your environment, choosing different foods, and then automatically eating less while you're eating to satiety. And then as you weigh less and you're spending less calories and body size, you can smoothly ramp up the exercise volume at the same time without exceeding any kind of energy expenditure. So it's just a lot more difficult than it sounds on paper with eat less, move more. Absolutely, absolutely. Resistance training, right, Ted? And by the way, just for the audience, Ted is 51 years old in insane shape. Set myself a goal to be in better shape than Ted in 15 years' time when I'm when I'm 51, right? So that's my goal now. It's inspiring, <laughs> dude. It, absolutely insane, right? So this guy 100% practices what he preaches. And when it comes to strength training, I've been lifting weights now. I'm 36. I luckily started lifting weights when I was 16. So I've been lifting weights consistently for like two decades already. And I don't know about you, Ted, but for me, it's almost like a challenge to just maintain. I wouldn't say a challenge, but it's very, it's extremely difficult to overeat when you've got a lot more muscle mass on your body, right? Just to kind of track back to what you were saying earlier as well and an analogy i like to use ted is you know muscle tissue is expensive right so it's it costs your body 
a lot of calories to keep that muscle on your body, right? Whereas like you said earlier, fat is essentially cheap, for lack of a better word, it's cheap tissue. It doesn't cost much, right? Metabolically. Now, research will show different. I think research shows, I think a lean uh, pound of lean muscle will burn about six to 13 calories a day just to keep that muscle on your body. But I've done some like calculations with clients and Ted, and I've coached hundreds of people. And on average, I've calculated every, say, every four weeks, on average, we'll say we'll, we'll change the kind of training they're doing, the training phase, and then you know we'll increase calories. I got a lot of people kind of uh, reverse dieting to kind of to get them to a point where their bodies automatically burn a lot more, a lot more calories, and then combine with that, go, talking on what you're saying, they're eating more protein. And what I find is, let's say every four weeks when we switch up the training phase, their body burns an extra on average anywhere between like sixty and about one hundred and ten calories more. Now. It's the whole pursuit of building muscle as well. Right? So yes, keep muscle on your body is going to cost your body more calories. Although research only shows six to 13 uh, calories for one pound of muscle. Um, but also it's the high protein, right? The thermic effect of that. So they've they've really increased their protein at the same time. So obviously their body's automatically burning more calories. Um, so I'd love to get your input on just the importance of, of, of strength training and building lean mass for people to be able to achieve, I guess, sustainable fat loss. Got it. All right. Well, there's a, there's a bunch of reasons to build lean mass. Um, first of all, well, okay, I'm going to back up a for a second and just say that when you look in the medical literature and they're like, oh, a pound of muscle only burns an extra six calories a day, that, that's kind of uh, fraudulent because that's, that's looking at someone who's completely motionless and in a coma, right? So, okay, yeah, it's only six extra calories when you're in a coma. But if you do even trivial amounts of exercise and you've got tons of muscle on your body, your caloric burn goes up exponentially. So like if you um, got on the elliptical and did a half an hour just as hard as you could go, zone four or five the whole time, you're going to burn 800 calories, right? And if somebody who doesn't do resistance training, doesn't have muscle, does the same half an hour on the elliptical, they'll burn 350 calories. You know, they'll burn way less. So uh, if you just throw a little bit of exercise or even just being moderately active in there, uh, you get way more than six calories per pound of muscle. So that's just basically not even fair, right? That's just a joke. Even when you're doing the resistance training with those muscles, your calorie burn is going to go way up over someone who doesn't have as much muscle. So I basically reject that entirely. It just it offends me, right? Um, the other thing is your whole goal in life is this constant Sisyphean struggle to have the highest lean mass you can get and the lowest fat mass you can get. Why do you want lean mass? First of all, it's just directly associated with longevity. So the more lean mass you have, the longer you're going to live, full stop, period. I mean, this is statistics and epidemiologically, but um, the more lean mass you have, the longer you're gonna live, the stronger you are, the longer you're going to live. Any kind of strength test, super associated with longevity. Any kind of measurement of skeletal muscle and lean mass, very associated with longevity. So the more muscle you've got, the longer you're going to live. Not only are you going to live longer, but your quality of life is going to be way higher. Like, so imagine that I touch you with like a magic wand of strength and boom, you're just, you just have tons of muscle. You're like the strongest, most muscular person on earth, right? Everything you do in life is going to be so easy. It's going to be laughable. Like you... You know, you go grocery shopping and you just pick up your entire cart and all the stuff in it. Like it's nothing, right? You can just pick up anything you want. You can do anything you want. You can climb anything you want. You can go anywhere you want. You're never going to fall down because you have so much strength in your balance and stabilization muscles. You're, you're just not going to get injured. You're not going to fall. You're not going to have any kind of frailty. You're going to just be like a, it's going to be like your Superman your whole life. And so not only are you going to live longer, but your quality of life is going to be higher the entire time. And so your whole goal in life should be as strong as you can possibly be and have as much muscle as you can possibly get. And you're only going to get that with resistance training because that muscle is so expensive. Your body does not want to waste any calories on muscle if you're not using it. So if you're, you know, sedentary, your body, your, all your muscles will just shrink down to nothing because your body's like, oh, hell no, we're not. We're not going to keep this super expensive 
tissue on there. Apparently, your body didn't read the textbook where it's only six ca calories per pound of muscle because uh, your body just lets all that go if you're not using it. So you have to literally be challenging your muscles all the way to failure and sending this very strong signal to your body that it has to have more muscle or you're going to die. And only then will your body be like, oh, hmm, okay, maybe we will invest a little bit in some muscle. So you have to do this super hard resistance training to failure to give a stimulus to your body to make the muscle in the first place. Then you have to keep doing it at some uh, level in order to maintain it long term. And since everybody on the planet is just steadily losing muscle from age, you know, like 35, 40 on in a straight line, you really, really want to slow that decline as much as you can or even go a little bit upward if possible, because you're just going to live longer and live better. Yeah. Incredible stuff, man. Um, with yourself, Ted, have I got this right, but do you do like, do you use weights or do you use body weight and train at home? Have I misread that somewhere? Yeah, I, I'm pretty much just calisthenics, um, body wow. weight at home. Like I don't go to a gym. I, I don't <laughs> use a lot of weights. I'm mostly doing, you know, push-ups, pull-ups, squats, and, and I do different, um, levels of, push-ups, pull-ups, and squats to make it harder and harder and harder. Like I'll do, you know, single leg pistol squats, or I'll do one-arm push-ups or one-arm pull-ups or something to make it even harder to just progressively overload. Um, not that there's anything wrong with weights. Like weights are awesome. Love weights. I'm mostly just trying to prove to people that you can do it with very little time and very little equipment and without a gym and without money and without resources. I mean, if I just need something to pull on, and I can do my whole workout. I could do it in a prison cell. I could do it in a closet. It's just like, you know, until you can do one arm push-ups for, for tons of reps, double digit reps and one arm chins for double digit reps and pistol squats for double digit reps, you still have room to progress with body weight alone. Not that there's anything wrong with weights, like weights are awesome. Um, I just like the the minimalism and I like the the fact that you can kind of do it anywhere, anytime. So I do lots of little nano workouts throughout the day. I'll just like, boom, drop to the ground, do the hardest set of push-ups I can possibly crank out. Takes me, you know, 40 seconds. I'm doing a really hard uh, variation of push-up and uh, I'm done, right? That's a nano workout. I can interstitially throw those in, into my day. Anywhere I'm at, I don't need equipment. I don't need time. I don't need money. I don't need a gym. I don't need anything. It's just so convenient. You know what I mean? Um, not that there's anything wrong with weights or gyms. I mean, that's awesome. So, yeah. That's awesome that you're doing that just to prove to people. And again, you know, you look at Ted's page and you're just going to see, I mean, it's insane. The amount of muscle mass you have as well. But I was just thinking then, in some ways, I would actually argue, you know, for longevity and health, what you're doing is better because you're saying pistol squats, all these things which require extreme amount of stability, strength, control, which as we age, especially become even more important, right? Stability, being able to balance on one leg. So I would argue, you know, there's probably a debate there that it could actually be more beneficial. You know what I mean? For the average person. Well, it's, it's good for relative strength. So personally, I'm more interested in moving my body through space than in just remaining motionless and lifting something super heavy over my head or whatever. You know what I mean? So I do like, you know, a lot of rock climbing and I also do a lot of running. I play ultimate Frisbee. I'm like just sprinting. So I want, I want to weigh as little as possible, be as fast as possible, and be as agile as possible. And I'm, I want to be really good at moving my body through space. So that's climbing and running and jumping. And you get that by doing body weight exercises that simultaneously encourage your body to be as strong as absolutely possible, but also weigh as little as possible. And it's a little bit different mindset from just absolute strength, which is where, uh, okay, I'm going to weigh 400 pounds like a sumo wrestler, but I'm going to be able to deadlift, you know, 2,000 pounds or, well, maybe not 2,000, but you know what I'm saying? Like if I, if my goal is to not move as much and just move huge amounts of weight relative to my body, then weights are way, way better. But if your goal is moving yourself through space, then the body weight and calisthenics is pretty much optimal. And, and like, as a slight tangent, that's probably um, unrelated to anything anybody cares about. I personally think the absolute pinnacle, the very best, 
is a combination of weights and calisthenics in the form of weighted calisthenics. So like if I went back and started over, I would just do weighted dips, weighted chins, weighted squats, you know, dip belt and do squats, chins and 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 uh, dips. And basically that would be personally, I think, a really amazing combination. So like I love calisthenics. I like weights. Combining the two is just a super sweet spot for me personally. You reckon you'll ever bring any weights in to challenge yourself as you get older? And I can imagine, I can imagine you're going to be like, right, I need to take this to the next level now. I need to make sure I can maximize strength. <laughs> well, I, I already have in the form of some weighted calisthenics. So I have a dip belt. I oh, you know, have some plates and um, a little weight stack that I can use for weighted calisthenics. So I am already doing weighted calisthenics. And that's kind of why I think that's like the very best, honestly. And in fact, um, I, I think early on I was super like Puritan dogmatic, just body weight only. And to the, almost to the point that I slowed down my progress and you really don't want to be that dogmatic. You don't want to be like, okay, machines are stupid. It all has to be free weights or, you know, weights are stupid. It all has to be calisthenics or um, you really don't want to close yourself off to any of those. And probably the answer is somewhere in between it's some sort of hybrid approach or some sort of combination because it's all good. Like weights are awesome. Calisthenics are awesome. Weighted calisthenics are super awesome. So, you know, the answer is usually little of everything or somewhere in between or some sort of combination. Yeah. You've got me thinking I need to level up myself, Ted, because it's like you're ticking all the boxes there with nature, rock climbing, getting outdoors, doing different activities. And then you get in the cardio element as well. And the research is clear that when it comes to training, strength is the most important thing. Just like you said, you know, the strength test, when they do that grip strength test with people, they find that they have obviously the best longevity. And then when it comes to muscle mass, as you said as well, but that's just one factor, right? So you've got your strength training covered. Then it's the VO2 max, right? So that's really important for longevity as well. Um, I'm not sure what your thoughts are on uh, Dr. Peter Atia, but I just read his book, Outlive. I'm not sure uh, what yep. your thoughts are on the on Yeah, the I read Outlive. Uh, I pre-ordered the day he announced it. Love Atia, love Outlive, great book. Um, also totally agree that like, so, you know, I used to think, okay, diet is 60% and exercise is 40%. And then I'm like, no diet is, you know, 40% and exercise is 60%. It's really just straight down the middle, 50, 50 diet and exercise. And then I used to think, well, resistance is more important than cardio. And then I was like, oh no, cardio is more important than resistance. Now I'm like, okay, that is also straight down the middle. Like you literally have to equally prioritize cardio and resistance and diet and exercise. I mean, they're, they're all just like so close to the middle that you can't really preferentially pick one or the other. So cardio is amazingly important. VO2 max is more associated with longevity than any other metric you could possibly measure in a human, full stop, period. So you absolutely want to be in amazing cardiorespiratory shape. And you're only going to get that by doing high-end cardio that challenges your system to make positive adaptations. So you better be doing cardio and you better be doing some high-end cardio because you're not going to get any better just by like walking. You know what I'm saying? And that's definitely so. And that, and your full transparency, it's, I, I was doing jujitsu. I've stopped jujitsu now. So the reality, I play volleyball once a week and I've just was going to use my bike and start, but it's broke. So I'm going to buy a new bike, but I keep putting it off. And I know I need to do that now. I need to get back on the top, like zone four, zone five cardio. Because uh, volleyball kind of dips in and out of that. But I know if I just jump on my bike and I do like a pretty intense uh, cycling session, you know, once or twice a week, that's going to kind of cover most of it. Um, so yeah, you give me a bit of a bit of a push here, but look, Ted, I could turn this into a, you know, a Joe Rogan style four hour podcast and just like take away your whole evening from you. So we better, <laughs> we better call it a day here. Where can, uh, where can the audience find you, Ted? Right, right. Thanks. Oh, well, I'm on all the socials at Ted Naiman, uh, you know, Twitter, Instagram or X or whatever we're calling it these days. Um, uh, I wrote the book called The PE Diet, and you can uh, find that at, well, pretty much anywhere books are sold online or go to thepediet.com or tednaiman.com. Um, I'm also working with the uh, Dr. Andreas Einfeld and the good people over at Diet Doctor. We're spinning off this little brand called Hava, H-A-V-A, Hava. And so you can go to hava.co and check that out. Um, it's it's pretty much an app and a system for evaluating foods and meals and um, for satiety per calorie, like, you know, protein, fiber, water, energy density, hedonic factors, like 
you know, how do you know whether this food is, you know, good or bad for a satiety per calorie point of view? So we're writing this whole ecosystem and app to kind of use the satiety per calorie system to, um, you know, evaluate foods. It's pretty cool stuff. Awesome. Awesome, Ted. I'll add all of this into the show notes. And I think the audience are going to get a ton of value from your content. And obviously what you talked about there is exciting. I bet you're really excited about that. Yeah, that sounds like that could be something really revolutionary, man. Mm -hmm. It's cool. It's awesome. Amazing. Amazing. I'm biased. <laughs> you got to be, man. You got to be. Um, it's, the only way, it's the only way to be. Um, yeah, Ted, really, really appreciate your time. That was incredible. As I say, I could talk to you. There's so many more things I, uh, I, could, I could ask you, but uh, we covered. you covered so much ground there, man. So thanks for your time. Oh, yeah. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Thanks, man.